Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jesiorski. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Hello again, Adam. Hello again. The virtual the virtual hellos continue. Yes. For a little for bit now. longer. Yeah. yeah. Getting closer and closer to a live, recorded live episode, I guess it would be. Yeah. Um, That'll be a special one because we'll we'll then just have to go back to, you know, doing this virtually afterwards. It's not going to meet every couple of weeks for recording, but it will be fun. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, we're continuing with our arc looking at the small picture. So basically looking at some individual paleolimnological indicators. Uh, we began uh, with pollen and I think... It just makes sense to continue this week with the big boys of the small pitcher, I guess, in many ways. Uh, the diatoms, uh, yeah. topic you are much more familiar with than I am. I, I'm, I'm basically an imposter just pretending to know stuff about diatoms today. That's funny. I like the uh, the big boys of the paleolimnology because they're the tiniest little ones. Um, yeah, no, diatoms, for sure. Uh, we've talked about them. I'm sure it's come up in every episode uh, at some point. Uh, there was, unlike pollen in some ways, we we covered them maybe in a little more detail in the bioindicators episode two. And there was a lot of detail on diatoms in the history ser- uh, series, for lack of a better word, uh, because they're such arc. an important We call arc. them arcs, Josh. I couldn't remember if that was a whole arc or if we tacked on another episode. I guess John's thing was in there and it was uh, whatever, uh, arc. And, and there's a good reason for that because they're really commonly used. They're important. All the things that we'll end up kind of diving into in a little more detail, but really, again, it's going to be a, a scratching of the surface because I mean, just go and read the Wikipedia or read the first part of the wiki on diatom. There's a lot That's of detail in there. And uh, books on it, if you're a student studying for your comprehensives or your defense. Um, but we'll we'll try and do our best. Yeah, so we have covered diatoms, I guess, as a paleo indicator in some detail. As you mentioned, when we first began talking about indicators a long, long time ago in our first real episode, uh, we went into some detail in part three of the history arc, uh, which is episode 21, if anyone wants to pause and go back and listen to that one. Um, and the purpose of that was we were, it was a deep dive into acidification and uh, the study of diatoms was very much fundamental to the development of paleolimnology as a quantitative science. But I guess um, the purpose of this episode is to, I guess, dial it even way back. And so maybe we'll begin... Um, at a much coarser level and just talk a little bit about what diatoms actually are. So yeah, what are they? Well, one thing I was thinking of as you were saying that is when you said about being an imposter and the summary of where diatoms fall into the paleo history and all that information, uh, all that stuff. Uh, and, and it's an interesting one because you, you have said, I think, once or twice before that you have counted one diatom slide or a couple of diatom slides. One and diatom core. One diatom core, apologies. Uh, but as a paleolimnologist, that, that could be quite common, right? But 
it's also, I assume, quite common if you work in paleolimnology that you have many colleagues who work with diatoms and you go to lots of seminars and read papers that are centered around diatoms. So I, I wonder if there's a little bit more general knowledge from a general paleolimnologist perspective about diatoms because they're so important as a paleo indicator. Anyway, that was a thought I had. I, I think so. I think, um, cause I did, you know, all my graduate work and later was not, well, not all of it. The vast majority of it was based on invertebrates, whether clodosterans or chronomans. And I think it's probably at least within the lab labs that I've been associated with just because of the dominance in numbers yeah. of students uh, looking at diatoms typically uh, uh, um, found that as a non-diatom person, you end up being exposed to a lot more of diatom stuff perhaps than someone with a diatom focus would be exposed to and as familiar with the uses of things like chronomids yeah. or uh, clodocerins or isotopes or whatever the indicator sure. may be. And that that may be group specific, like uh, like uh, research group specific. If yes, a smaller group, and you know the PI doesn't have a background in diatoms, like Jenny, for example, um, is not a diatomist in her background. So we have students who work on diatoms, but that's kind of came with senior students and postdocs and that kind of thing. So it may be specific, but I think I think that's not a bad generalization. But I digress. What is a diatom? A diatom is an alga. Uh, they are a group of algae. Where they fall into the taxonomic hierarchy may depend on the reference you're reading. Is it a phylum Bacillariophyta? Is it the class Bacillariophyceae? Is it some other distinction based on which group you're talking about and they're sort of a superphylum or a subphylum? There's a lot of variation. Doesn't really matter from a uh, use perspective. They are unicellular in most cases. Sometimes they'll have small colonies, uh, strings of them attached to each other. Photosynthetic algae that are found everywhere. They are ubiquitous in not even aquatic environments, but just wet environments. Where there's water, there's probably going to be diatoms. Yeah, and so that covers marine environments and freshwater environments, which are the ones that you'll encounter most often uh, when you look at diatoms in the the paleo literature, but you'll find diatoms and peats, and you'll find analysis of diatoms and peats uh, in soils and just any any sort of damp surface. Uh, you have, I remember being told a long time ago, I don't know by whom, but you could just you know get a uh, bowl of water and just put it on the roof of any building and just give it a little bit of time, and then eventually some diatoms will somehow find their way into there and be growing merrily when you go back to check. Yeah, I've heard that too. So I assume it was small. I don't know if he ever yeah. tried it, put a bucket <laughs> up on top of biosciences complex. I suspect not, but maybe uh, yeah. maybe a predecessor told him that story. Maybe it was presented in a very convincing way. So I'm taking it as gospel. So, right. you know, we're putting on the internet. So now it is true. That's it. Um, but uh, there is a long, long history of interest in the diatoms. Um, from the first earliest microscope analyses of people just looking at pond water and seeing the little animalcules uh, that were swimming around at the time. So the very first described species uh, dates back to 1783 and is Bacillaria paxillifer. Yeah, well, hence the Bacillario 
Phyta or Physiae that I mentioned for the larger group. I had to look it up what this species was. It's not one I'm familiar with. Um, I imagine it's a European taxon, uh, maybe found elsewhere, but it's a like a penate. So we'll talk about that. It's a long, pointy one as opposed to a round one. Uh, and if you are a diatomist out there and don't want to go look it up, you could, but it looks kind of like a Nitsia or one of those sort of species. Uh, but it's only one of many. There are uh, more than 12,000 named taxa of diatoms, and the estimate is that the diversity of the group is larger than that. No, though a lot of them have been named because they've been studied for so long and they preserve well in sediments, so we can name them from not just finding them live, but finding them dead. Uh, so it's estimated there's about 20,000 taxa uh, in current existence. And and they've been around for a very long time. Yeah. And those, let's say 20,000 species, um, when you start looking at them in aggregate, uh, it's kind of shocking how important they are. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are, but diatoms collectively um, are responsible for a significant portion of the Earth's biomass as a whole. Um, and they generate about 20 to 50% of the oxygen produced on the planet each year, which is just kind of mind-blowing. And it gets more mind-blowing as we go down uh, in <laughs> terms of like the uh, the amount of them. But that's, and this that's is, the stat I think that you can surprise people the most with, because everyone's familiar with the tropical rainforest and grasslands being really productive. And even, I think most people are just don't think about water as being a source of oxygen, right? Because you can't, it's the antithesis of that for us. But from the organisms living in there, they're incredibly productive and diatoms drive that production uh, because of the area. It's going to be mostly marine species, but freshwater as well. Yeah. And this is all being done by very, very small individual organisms that range in size from about two to 200 micrometers. Um, so, and the vast majority of them, I think, um, are unicellular as opposed to the colonial forms. You're not really able to make them out just by looking at them without a microscope. Although there are some exceptions with things like, oh, I don't remember them. What's the full name of Didymo? Didymosphena geminatum, something like that. And and I'm not sure it is the biggest diatom, but it is one of the biggest diatoms, and it produces like a sheath, and you might recognize it as rock snot. Um, it'd be one of the common names for it, where you just get like a slimy mucus kind of forming on rocks and um, rivers. In, yeah, where they're common. In, in riverine environments. Um, and at that point, you're able to see them, but by and large, these are just, you know, to the, to the human eye, largely invisible. Very small organisms um, that have a very, very quick generation time um, because most of the time they are re reproducing asexually um, and the gener generation time is about a day. Uh, and with the maximum lifespan of any particular individual on the order of clo you know close to a week or six days. Yeah, that's short. And that means the turnover is rapid and when you get conditions that are really, really perfect for diatoms to flourish, you can have this huge bloom, but boom in their population <laughs> uh, as a result of those conditions. So they'll rapidly increase their population to take advantage of good conditions and depends on the taxon and we'll talk about that. 
but then they can also quickly be lost and outcompeted by other taxa because there are some things about diatoms in their biology that makes them uh, less competitive than other algal groups. Yep. But they definitely follow a boom-bust cycle, and when conditions arise, they, they can respond very quickly, which is one of the reasons that they're of interest as a paleoluminological indicator, but also in just in terms of their importance in the ecology. So you can think of like our focus is obviously on lake systems. So when you have um, uh, ice going off and stratification forming, all of a sudden you have warmer conditions, and this is when you can have like a spring bloom form very, very quickly after the ice goes out. And um, so in that way, they're incredibly responsive, but largely they're not moving around under their own power um, to chase the good conditions, I guess. Um, they're largely non-motile. I think there are some exceptions. No, yeah, and, and those would not be the ones in the water column. They're not like flagellated and swimming, in air quotes, to stay in the photic zone. The ones that are modal are benthic forms, and that's primarily to keep them from being covered by falling sediment so they can stay in the upper part of the sediment. So that's right, yeah. Yeah. And so they rely um, on passive movement so that uh, a lot of them are dependent on um, water currents and whatnot to keep them up in the the lit zone where they can feed basically on the upper layers, the epilimnion of the uh, lake environments. Um, or at least that is the case for the planktonic species, as Josh just mentioned. Some of them are benthic, some of them form on substrates like the uh, didymo that we uh, mentioned earlier. So basically it can be found everywhere, but in many ways, um, you know, the planktonic and benthic species are the ones that are will be most studied and most represented in most paleolimnological analyses. That's right. Yep. And when we're looking at them in paleo analyses, which we'll talk about more in the next kind of segment of the uh, episode, but we are looking at individuals. So we mentioned that some taxa form colonies, but when we see them on in the sediments, they tend to break apart, right? But we have to keep in mind that some of those taxa are forming colonial chains or rings of different individual cells. And that can be, I mean, that's interesting because they get bigger and they look cool, but it can also be important for their life history and their biology. And those are the kind of uh, adaptations that allow them to remain in the water column. So forming these larger star-shaped uh, aggregations colonies can decrease the uh, sinking factor that's going on and keep them from sinking as quickly. So there are some biological adaptations to overcome the lack of mobility and the need to generally uh, keep from sinking out of the upper waters and out of the area where the light is going to allow them to photosynthesize. And because their cell walls are composed of silica, which is glass. Which I don't um, think we actually have said yet. I think that was the first time no, we mentioned a, that. <laughs> it's a key, a key thing. Um, they do sink. And this just is a mind-blowing uh, cystic. But uh, in marine environments, the, sh the frustules, I guess, is, is the, the word of like the, the shells of dead diatoms, can be as much as half a mile deep on the ocean floor. Crazy. 800 meters of diatom glass and not much else. 
Yeah. And this, the scale just does not make sense. But that is why, you know, that, that, um, for something that's, yeah, like five microns across. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So that volume of individuals of production, um, just, you know, all comes together to have the impact that they do on the planet on which we live. It's very much their planet in many ways. Yeah. And has been since the, like, Jurassic, uh, is the estimates and, and well, or, or, uh, in terms of been recorded in the record back to the Jurassic, it's estimated that they may have evolved. Well, they probably evolved earlier than that, but maybe as early as the, the Carboniferous Permian kind of time frame. So they have been around for quite a long time and taxa look remarkably similar to species that are found throughout the entire Cenozoic. So since the end Cretaceous extinction, taxa look uh, quite modern in some of these old records, like marine records and things like that. So yeah, uh, they have dominated the planet for a very long time. And speaking of records, um, you know, most of the records that we are interested in are much shorter than, I don't know how many million years ago was, was the end of the Cretaceous period. But, uh, you know, the classification of diatoms was well underway in the 18th century. Their ecology was becoming um, more studied into the 19th and early 20th century. But then, as we've talked before previously on the show, interest in the diatom sedimentary record was definitely um, of great scientific interest by the 1920s. Um, and their, their use as an indicator is totally, totally tied to the development of paleo as a science, as we mentioned before. And we don't know, you know, it's very difficult to put your finger on when the first one, first diatomist, or when the crossover, I guess, was from being a diatomist to a paleolimnologist, I guess, um, would be. But, um, you know, we were, we've remarked before on um, the PhD thesis of Nipkow from 1927, looking at lakes within Varves and Lake Zurich. And it's not sure, in the, it's definitely not the earliest one, but it's the earliest one that we found that we were like, this is a very modern, like this would fit in, you know, yeah. in conference proceedings today in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think still of all the things we've talked about in this podcast, that that's right up there with things that I found quite surprising just how modern that uh thesis appeared from nearly a hundred years ago uh and not long after that the use of diatoms really expanded to what we would call and what we would think of as really more paleolimnological as opposed to taxonomic uh, applications things like the Husted uh, pH categories that we talked about from the 30s, Nygaard's diatom indices from the 50s, and then working into some of the more early regression uh, models. I'm not sure if we call them models, but regression type of calculations uh, between diatoms and pH. So driven by the identification of the fact that different diatom taxa have different uh, likelihoods of being found in waters of varying acidity or alkalinity and that those didn't always overlap with one another in terms of uh, which taxa were found where so these acidobiontic taxa would not be found in the same lakes conditions as the alkalophilus taxa 
and that that could be used to reconstruct um, and infer what the conditions may have been like in the past over a fairly short time period, you know, 40, 40 odd years to go from, uh, from those changes. Well, I guess it all comes down to how, who you're talking to in terms of a short period of time, like how many generations of diatoms were there in that period of time? <laughs> um, I can't do the math on that. <laughs> what was the winter like? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we've covered that in some detail in previous episodes. Um, but here we're talking, today we're talking more about their, you know, I guess the nuts and bolts of their use. Um, and so one of the key questions in diatom analyses or the first steps in diatom analysis, I guess, is isolating them, uh, from the rest of the sediments. And yep. as we mentioned, they're made of silica and there are lots, and there's lots of silica from a variety of sources found in the environment. And a lot of it ends up in lake sediments, whether it's biogenic or geologic in origin. Um, so that means, you know, if you just smear some sediment on the slide, you're going to have a very tough time counting the diatoms. Big time. Uh, and even when you do isolate the diatoms, it can still be quite messy. Um, but anyway, the uh, the procedures, and this this is one where I'm much rustier than Josh because I said I've done this exactly once a million it's, years ago. It's been ago. a few years since I <laughs> <laughs> did any lab work on, of this kind. But, yeah. But the isolation of the, the diatom frustules from the rest of the sediments is done with uh, strong acids. Very often, yep. Or, or, or some sort of oxidizer. Uh, because you want to, the whole idea is you want to get rid of everything else. So it's the opposite of what we talked about for pollen last uh, episode, where we wanted to keep organic stuff like polosporelinin or whatever and uh, get rid of the silica. So you get, you get rid of it through that. Uh, you want to get rid of all the organic stuff and so you need to oxidize it away so peroxide will do that hydrogen peroxide um 40 hydrogen peroxide uh or um acids and that the acid specifically so it's some combination of nitric or nitric and sulfuric acids to remove that organic matter so so quite nasty not as nasty as the hf but still, you know, it will ruin your day in a hurry. Yeah, nitric uh, acid is a strong oxidizer. And and the one thing about them is HF is is nasty, um, but nitric and sulfuric acids don't mix. They don't play well with other things generally, so they have to be kept quite separate. They, I mean, it's obviously are bad for you. Burns are terrible from strong acids across the board, uh, but nitric acid is a very strong oxidizer, uh, and it doesn't like to be in the same vicinity as a lot of other things, including peroxide. <laughs> so in, in the, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and then the reason you do this is so that you can basically get rid of everything or not everything as much as you can. And then you will find out when you make the slides, how much you get run of, uh, get rid of. Cause then you can run into all sorts of, oh, now I'm like, um, going off the script a little bit here, but, um, then if you have a lot of sediment or, Plastic material. 
classic material and that's in the same size as the diatom range, then you can get into like some sort of density separations to, you know, yeah, this, more complicated techniques. Yeah, the same size would actually be quite hard. Uh, the, the thing is that most of the geogenic, like geological uh, quartz sands and things like that are a little bit bigger and a little heavier than fairly fine amorphous silica in the, in the diatom valves. So you can separate them by a density gradient, something like sodium poly, tungstate, uh, which is a, a heavy liquid basically that you tailor the density to and you try and get it so that the diatoms float nicely in the upper part and then all the heavy stuff gets down in the pellet of the material after it's centrifuge. So there are ways to get, basically all that to say, there are ways to get rid of the bigger, heavier silica components that are not going to be diatoms. It's just an extra step on what is already a fairly laborious lab technique because after you've put all this acid into the sample to get rid of the organic matter you can't plate acid onto your <laughs> slides you don't want to be breathing out acid fumes at the microscope which is the next step uh, after you've made slides of them so you have to rinse all that away and it, you can do that at a centrifuge but generally you just do it through uh, settling over a 24-hour period and do that a, a bunch of times yeah. and then um you know at the end you know, you're ready to hit the light microscope um or well i guess um, depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, most paleolimnologists, I guess, would be hitting the light microscope. But if your interest is of a more taxonomical nature, you'd be uh, preparing them for the um, electron microscope. Yeah, I, and, I would actually add to that. Like Everything we've been talking about, I think, is only for light microscopy. I'm not actually sure what the preparation for samples for an SEM is, whether because you're so small, so tailored, they don't need to have as much of a removal of the other okay. stuff. I, I have no idea. So this is uh, referring to only isolation of fairly large samples for light microscopy. And uh, if you are looking at an SEM, it may be different. Yeah, if, uh, you know what? Delving deep into deep into my brain, and my only experience myself with the SEM was clodocerin stuff, and they were whole animals, so it was a totally yep. different environment. You could just mm -hmm. pick them out and put them on the stubs. So, mm -hmm. anyway, anyway, and then the interest from uh, you know the electron microscopy kind of angle is that in many ways some of the tr truly distinctive elements of um, the structure are that would separate species are um, only visible at that sort of magnification. And, you know, from a from my point of view, um, you know, it just seems like very eldritch, the taxonomic revisions upon revisions and the, cha the changing nature, I guess, of diatom taxonomy, where even, you know, the classification of the phylum versus class level, it seems somewhat fluid depending on the age of the reference that you're reading. And um, it just made it all seem even more arcane to me in that reading older papers, it's like, well, no, 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 that is actually the same general trend being shown. It's just has been the species uh, changes have changed, you know, have designations have changed over the intervening 20 years between these two papers. I'm not saying anything different. It's just the names are different. Yeah, it's a huge part of diatom paleolimnology. Uh, and, and we say, you know, sometimes recently, but there was a kind of a really big taxonomic change around 1990 or the, the late 1980s. So it's, it's quite some time ago uh, that 
the main distinctions into different uh, genera of diatoms were subdivided quite heavily. So a lot of taxa were reclassified re, uh, into different newly named uh, genera. Um, and one of the hard parts about that, I think, that makes it a challenge is that most people learn their taxonomy using the oldest naming uh, scheme or one of the older naming schemes. Because generally people use one set of books as, as one set of taxonomic, they're not keys, but uh, authorities. References. References, exactly. Uh, what are the, collectively referred to as the KLBs often. There's four books written by uh, two German authors, Kramer and Langbertolo. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. But uh, anyway, and, and they're written in the 80s, uh, so they all use the old taxonomy. But since then, they've been revised, and there's lots of other papers and books, and obviously that use the new taxonomy or some combination of taxonomy because not all of them were revised in this one year. So it is, it is quite complicated uh, to navigate through for anybody. Um, I, I often push very hard, you know, with students to use the newest names because that's what they are now and make sure you have all the authority part in it. But it is, it is a challenge for sure. Yeah. All right. But I mean, I just, when names stick, they stick. It's like Brontosaurus versus Apatosaurus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> People will not let it go. Um, oh, oh, oh for but sure. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's exactly the same. And the the last the last thing on that is um, they're often still referred to as their by their old group as a grouping of them. You would say this taxon sensulato, so in the general sense, uh, all of the species that used to be called navicula, basically, or used to be called fragilaria, and now are six different uh, genera. And, and you can refer to them in that way, and that, that's perfectly acceptable. And everyone knows that, but it takes a lot of time to learn that as a new student. So I think the, the uh, price of admission is a little bit higher than it is for some other groups. Yeah, and this taxonomic complexity, I guess, or diversity of the data sets are what interested statisticians in the first place. Um, it's a big group. Lots of different species found in lots of different places. And, you know, before you know it, um, af after the 1980s, um, they're being used as paleo pH meters, among, and among other things. And today, diatoms um, can be used to infer a wide, wide variety of, of um, limnological variables. And so the big ones that I per you know, personally associate diatoms with are pH and total phosphorus or um, uh, measurement of nutrient conditions within the lakes, but uh, um, you don't have to stop there. You can definitely dig a fair, fair bit deeper, um, um, whether you're looking at conductivity, um, this is marine intrusions. Uh, it's a key chapter within Josh's uh, graduate work. Um, yeah, well, well, not even just intrusions. I mean, you could, you know, like marine habitat moving from coastal lagoons that are brackish to the full marine environment, like lakes that are basically in the ocean, uh, through to salty marshes, and then all the way up to a freshwater gradient in any different environment from the Arctic to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, yeah, they, they're great indicators because very different species are going to live in the marine environment than in the freshwater environment. Uh, 
even if we're taking out of uh, the picture the fact that the vast majority of marine diatoms are planktors because the water's really deep, so there's not going to be any light on the actual bottom. Um, yeah. Um, temperature uh, is another one. Uh, again, well, in some ways, um, in terms of like broader water properties, um, due to stratification, uh, the requirements, I guess, imposed by stratification, so and how good they are at floating can be used to infer some things about temperature and uh, growing seasons. Uh, there's some means of inferring types of pollution um, in terms of like metal pollution through the formation of like deformations. Like So getting outside of the specific taxonomy of Optima, you can start looking at the frequency of deformities among the species to infer changes through time. Um, and then uh, the presence versus absence of diatoms can tell you some things. Um, and this is where you get into environmental topics like silica depletion in the Great Lakes. Yep. Which I think we've talked about the that work a little bit in the nutrient. Well, we've talked about nutrients in, in the Great Lakes for sure. But the huge pulse in uh, eutrophication with ongoing development, early, fairly early development in the Great Lakes caused so much diatom production that they drained the silica out of the lake to where the to the point where all the diatoms were then limited because there wasn't enough silica for them to make their to produce their uh, frustules, and so there was a loss of diatoms, and that could be measured from a, a few different ways: the lack of species in sediment cores, but also techniques like biogenic silica. So yeah, there's lots of things that can be used, and then also just to habitat because different taxa will be indicative of being epistemic. They live on sand grains or in kind of the area around sand grains versus being epiphytic and living in stocked forms on vegetation to the planktonic environment. And that can tell you about changing lake habitat, changing water levels as the relative proportion of benthic versus uh, pelagic uh, environments in the ecosystem altered. So there's lots of things that can be inferred beyond the direct chemical or inferences of chemical water quality variables from just what we know about where they live in the lake and how they go about existing. So the timing of their blooms and all those kind of things. Yeah, and then it can even be taken one step further where outside of the information provided by the individual ecologies of the organisms, um, there's a large amount of physical information captured within the remains themselves. So once you isolate the frustules, you're then able to do things like um, isotopic analysis to find various um, uh, information about the conditions within the lake that were just captured by the formation of the frustule at the time of the formation of the frustule. Yep. Those are some of my favorite talks when I, uh, the couple of the, three uh, international paleolimnology symposia that I've attended because they're so different even though they're using very similar techniques where they'll uh, isolate valves of diatoms incredibly clean samples so far more than you would need for taxonomic identification and then they'll run isotopic analysis on the oxygen in particular that's in the silica molecule the SiO2 molecule of their cell walls in order to infer just like like we would with oxygen isotope analysis of cellulose or sediment or ice cores, any of those things, how water conditions have changed. 
very much like corals are, are used in the same way, but uh, they tell you a different thing because diatoms are in the water column and we're in lakes often as opposed to where there's not going to be any corals really. So tons of things that diatoms can be used for inferring. And I'm sure we've only begun to, well, we probably have a, a fair number of them, but there are things that have yet to be identified, especially as we get into more uh, genetic-based analysis of their DNA uh, and continue to apply some of these techniques like very small-scale uh, mass spectrometry. So <clears throat> having uh, talked at length uh, about what diatoms can be used for, I guess the obvious question is, are they a great paleo indicator or are they the greatest paleo indicator? <laughs> that is the age-old question, isn't it? It is the age-old. Duke it out in the comments. Yeah, uh, please do. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a hard one. I, it's one of those funny things. Like, I'm not even, like, I've always, I think from a paleo methods perspective, I would say I've done 90, probably 90% of my direct work is based on diatoms, but I'm not sure I classify myself a diatomist in some ways. Um, paleolimnologist, obviously, otherwise why am I here? But uh, it, it, there, to really get deep into the diatom taxonomy and all of the method development sort of thing is, uh, is a, a hard part. And I'm glad people do that. And so I, I feel a little biased, but I think maybe everyone is, as we said at the beginning, because everyone's really familiar with diatoms. Yeah, it's uh, an, a, a truly loaded question um, because I don't think anyone is really qualified to answer that question. There are lots of indicators out there and no universal pale knowledge is possible. It all depends on the question you're trying to answer. There are lots of things that you might be interested in that diatoms are just simply not able to tell you anything about. And so it's like asking, which is the best tool, a hammer or a screwdriver? It, yeah, know, it, yeah, yeah. It all depends. Or it a, all depends. Or a jigsaw or, you know, it's so yeah. variable. They tell you, com they do completely different things. Absolutely agree. But they are the greatest paleo indicator. Um, <laughs> Uh, I totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I had another um, comment I was going to make there. Okay. Well, I guess um, we got into a little bit there in terms of making distinctions. Um, there's definitely, you know, a really blurry one in between, you know, a paleolimnologist that um, studies diatoms and a diatomist because yeah. on either, 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 one of those kind of terms can be taken to extremes where it's almost unrecognizable from the other end of the spectrum. Um, because from an ecological point of view, you know, you know, the pursuit of identifying the various characteristic structures to separate individual uh, taxa that you can only use, uh, that you can only be identified using uh, a, a, an electron microscope, um, you know, that is important in terms of distinguishing between these species, but from a paleolimnological point of view or in a, a diatom analysis of the communities, like you're not going to be able to make use of any of that information most of the time. For sure. The, the folks that work with SEMs primarily and do a lot of that really careful, very fine scale biology, uh, they, they are absolutely diatomists, probably call themselves phycologists. I don't know that, that necessarily they would 
they would be on that paleolimnologist side. They would push towards the other end because they really are, they are looking at algal biology more than they're looking at environmental reconstruction. Uh, it, it obviously useful for then going and doing that part, but they are on one end of that very long spectrum. And most people probably fall somewhere in the middle. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, in terms of like loaded questions, it kind of gets into which is the better approach to take to be a lumper or a splitter when you're doing your diatom analysis. Oh, such a tough question. And and don't want to bias anyone's opinion on that. And do you, what should we explain what I think maybe that's self-evident, but the idea of whether you are uh, a taxonomist who ad nauseum will just continue to search and search and search for that exact picture that looks exactly like the sample you're looking at, because there is variation, sometimes quite a bit of variation within the different groups uh, in terms of morphology, size, it really is not a good indicator of diatom species. I mean, there are bounds on the, the taxonomic uh, size, the size of individuals of that species, but it can be huge because they get smaller as their generations go on, which we didn't really talk about, um, but is one of the characteristics of their biology is that they get smaller and smaller and smaller as they go through this, uh, this um, asexual reproduction until the point where they get too small or as small as they can get and then they get bigger. So that's a tough one. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then it comes down to in terms of doing a count where you're looking at you know, let's say the standard count would be like 400 valves. Is that right, Josh? Yep. Something like that. Yep. So 400 valves, like 20 or 30 slides in your core. So you're looking at, you know, on the order of several, several thousand, um, diatom valves isolated of the course of an individual course study. And then you find one oddball. And, oh yeah, for sure. Oh, you're oh, and, more than one. You you know, you may find a number of taxa you, you can't yeah. immediately identify. And then it becomes a, the question is, oh, I've only found a small handful of these. It's not going to impact the eventual pH reconstruction in any real way because they're so rare. And then, you know, the splitter be more prone to be um, to attack the question from but I want to know what it is yeah, and I want to give it a name and I want the name to be correct. So that when I go back to my count sheets, everything's accounted for. Whereas lumper B unknown species A. That is yeah. To, to some extent, I may disagree slightly and say, I don't know that that's necessarily lumper. I think that is a lazy taxonomy splitter, which is, or, you know, a, a fairly lazy taxonomist. And uh, <laughs> I call then I, I think I am one of those. So I don't necessarily, I wouldn't lump them. I wouldn't say, ah, oh, it's close enough to this one. It, I'll just put it in with, navicula whatever um what i would most likely do is say no that's something separate it looks different enough these are the range of what i've seen and, I, and i'm confident that's different but i'm not going to go and find what it's called because it's not important and if in another slide i see lots of that one then i'll go and figure out what it is so i would that would be my um my tact generally take lots of pictures of definitely a diatome shutter bug that never get used for anything uh, make sure they're well labeled and then kind of work Never look at as quick as they can. Yeah, but they're there if you need to go back. So that's, that's my opinion. And I would, I would like to hear uh, others and, and their rationale for guaranteed different uh, tax. Yeah. And 
Yeah. And then it comes down to, um, in many ways, um, that kind of splitting in terms of, again, it comes down to the question you're trying to answer and whether or not you need to identify all, all the species all the way down, because yes, slight morphological differences, um, between, you know, diatom taxa variety seven versus variety eight. Um, yes, it may have you know, three more striations, um, per valve, but is it likely that impacts the ecology in any straight, in any real way, um, to make it worth identifying it? I guess it all comes down to what you're trying to do. Cause really, if you're trying to do a reconstruction, you want to get your count, you know, you want to get more counts and will one individual valve change the statistical analyses in any meaningful way? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, I've never done a transfer function. I've never tried to create one of these things. It's always been about generally looking at big environmental changes, you know, a huge amount of salt coming in, permafrost thaw, causing half the bloody lake uh, catchment to enter into the lake. So it, it really does come down to what you're doing with, with the uh, analysis. And there's a finite amount of time. And so, you know, if the question you're trying to ask is more a taxonomical one, yet those three extra striations for valve may, 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 may be an important part of the answer. Um, and, uh, um, but again, it's like the right tool for the job and um, time is finite. And, you know, and this, this actually is kind of like a little bit of an aside, but it's kind of interesting in terms of, um, you know, how do you spend your time? And this came up in, the year of COVID just within Pearl um, for undergraduate theses because there was such a limited amount of lab time and training time available, virtually an incredibly limited amount of like not even face-to-face -face time, like face several meters away from FaceTime. Um, and basically the diatom projects were all put on hold from a student training point of view um, just because of the amount of time required to get somebody up and running and able to do things on their own. And it was more the focuses were I think almost entirely clodocerins actually might have been one or two crumbs. No, no, there would have been no crumbs because there'd be no one to pick the trays for them. But yeah, uh, well, it's just that's a great example because there's a finite amount of time, but there's a finite it takes a, a lot of time to learn how to identify diatom. The, the worst lumper who just throws it all into one big group, you still have to figure out the name of that group eventually. Otherwise, you just have <laughs> unknown species across the top of your stratigraphy. And what good is that? Um, uh, definitely, it is a a steep learning curve. And it's not to say that the other indicators aren't as well. Uh, certainly not. Picking coronametrase is challenging. Identifying things in clodosterol. But it's just so speciose. You need these resources like these taxonomic references that may not be as available, for example, as a, different papers that are more widely available for Clodocera taxonomy. Not everyone's going to have a, a set of these books at home when they have their microscope during the year of COVID. So yeah, definitely all things to take into account. Yeah. And I guess um, in that term, along that tangent of like how much time things take, um, it seems to always be ever since, you know, like, I mean, in the last 20 years, I guess, since when I first was introduced to the world of paleontology, um, there's always off in the distance, some sort of talk about automating a lot of this stuff. <laughs> so like computers are becoming more powerful and will, will diatom analysis eventually be replaced by robots? I would, I, I would be the first person to buy 
that <laughs> machine. I'm sure it would be very expensive. <laughs> but but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what do you, what would you need? You'd need something that can uh, probably size the valve, you know, kind of like we talked about with particle size analysis. So that that's not too hard. Uh, Some sort of photo recognition software yeah, in a database. Exactly. Like a, yeah. you can identify AI. people. So maybe it'll happen. Not very much. But I don't know that the R&D uh, push for that use of uh, artificial intelligence is right at the top of the list. So it may be a while or be a knock-on effect from some other type of pattern recognition software. Yeah. And I guess, and then, you know, um, I guess it's not a case of if not, but maybe because uh, of it being a uh, largely academic endeavor due to the time intensive nature of paleolimnological analyses. Like, I mean, in terms of like the private um, companies, seem, you know, be less interested just because of the amount of time that is required to um, produce a diatom analysis. Like, there are, I guess, paleolimnological consultants out there, but they're not super common. Um, um, in many ways, uh, the academic world has cornered this market through their use of student labor, really. Yeah. The only other one I know of is forensics, because where someone drowned often uh, can be recorded, the conditions in which they unfortunately drowned can be recorded in the water that they take into their uh, body and can be used to infer different conditions. There was an episode of, uh, which is actually done. There are, there are books on forensic uh, applications of diatoms, but there was a, a particular episode. I recall someone, maybe John again, sending a uh, email about, I think it was CSI Miami, where they were talking about diatoms. Okay. Many years ago I don't know if you want now. to get uh, um, your information on this stuff from the CSI show. My favorite clip of any CSI show is, I think they're being hacked, and so they respond by having two people typing on the same keyboard at the same time to uh, fight the hack. I don't know if their technical um, depictions are maybe the the most true to life. I, I don't remember the details. I did watch it. My vague recollection is many, many years ago is that the person died in a freshwater environment and was found in the ocean, and so they could piece together something of that. That's my guess, but something like that. It would all depend on how species-specific the assemblage in that location was. But it, it is a, a use of them. Okay. Well, I guess with that, we've pretty much ex exhausted everything there is to say about diatoms. That's it. We got to, to the, the end uh, of the, CSI. We got to the CSI Miami. <laughs> so we've officially run out of material. And uh, a perfect timing as well. Yeah. All right. So once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo, and there's only one A in Paleo. All of our past episodes and the corresponding show notes slash blog, slash blog posts can be found on our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca, which can be found on our Twitter page. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your 
favorite podcasts. Those five-star ratings would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care all that much. We're just doing this for fun and for our 29 very uh, regular listeners. And that's it for now. Uh, But join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.